Oh. Um, so we are looking at joy, um, particularly in lead up to Christmas. We're looking at, in Luke's gospel, there are a number of songs of joy. People sing out praise to God through what God's doing to them. Last week, we looked at Mary and how Mary sings in joy, particularly from a place of her lowliness, her meekness. The fact that God chooses to use a poor um, woman from the from a, a not particularly, particularly significant place, he, she chooses to use Mary. And that's because it's the nature of who God is. God chooses to use Israel, despite the fact that Israel is quite a small country. He particularly uses use tribes from Israel that aren't significant. God doesn't choose the, the powerful and the mighty to use. He chooses the lowly and the insignificant. And sometimes maybe we want to be powerful and mighty in order that God may use us, rather than be lowly and meek and humble in order that God will use us. And today we look at the son of Zechariah. And Zechariah is probably a, a counterance to Mary's. Mary is all about the meekness of the individual and the meekness of Israel. Zechariah's son is about the greatness of God and the greatness of the things that God does through those meek and mild people. Um, so that's pretty much the sermon for today. And with those things come joy. Um, I'm now just going to pad out for 20 minutes or so. Um, Christmas traditions. What are Christmas traditions like in your family? Um, I've been married just short of 12 years now. And so we've kind of, I think we're getting to a stage where we've developed our own traditions, that are a synthesis of, of both our families. But probably the area in our household that's been the hardest to reconcile against our upbringings is the way you give Christmas presents out. Yeah, this is not just us, is it? <laughs> so my family, in my family, we would tend, Christmas was normally at my grandparents' house, and my granddad would sit by the tree, and he would dish out the presents to the children, and we would take them to the various aunts and uncles, and they would just open them as soon as they've got them, and there was joy, and there was paper everywhere, and there was an explosion of great stuff happening, and, and everyone shouting over each other, saying, oh, thank you for this, and then you could also hide the presents you didn't like. <laughs> um, whereas Cara's family, my wife's family, is very different. Each present is taken in turn and given to the aunt or uncle or granny or whoever it is who opens it very carefully. And we all wait in anticipation and look for that present. And then they open it and then they have to examine it and look at it from all the different angles, despite the fact it's just a square box and it's a book and surely the book looks the same from every angle. And then they have to really pretend that they like it um, and say thank you to everyone including the person who gave it and also to everyone else for watching. And if two people have the same present, they have to open it at the same time. And then there's a, then there's a competition to try to make sure that, that, that one, the one aunt who's very deaf doesn't announce really loudly what it is before the granny hasn't opened it. And it's just, oh, it's taken 12 years and still we haven't learned the lesson in my family that my family got it right. <laughs> Like Christmas present opening takes about four days. Um, traditions. This story starts with traditions. 
It starts from understanding who Zachariah is and the tradition that he's born into. Zachariah is from a family of priests. That's part of his tradition as a family. He's from a particular lineage and they had their own traditions in how they passed down from one generation to the next the faith and story of God's people. And one of the ways they did that was through names and that will come important in a minute. The bit that leads up to this son being son is the promise of a child. Zachariah, because of his family, goes and ministers in the temple. Behind the big curtain, he's up there sacrificing doves and pigeons or whatever they did, and suddenly the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and says, do not be afraid, because that's how angels always start. More on that tonight. Come along tonight and I'll explain why that is. And Gabriel, is said, Gabriel says to Zechariah, you will have a son, and you are to call him John. And Zechariah doesn't believe him because his wife is elderly. They're not going to have children. And despite the fact that God has done this miracle again and again and again in the history of Israel, in Genesis it happens all the time. Abraham and Sarah being the most common example. Zachariah doubts. And because of that, the angel makes him unable to speak. And he comes out of the temple unable to speak. And with hand gestures, it says, the Bible says, when he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. You have to wonder what the signs are for. I just saw the angel Gabriel and my wife's going to have a baby. <laughs> I don't know what the, the signs are there, but that is how charades got started, which is another great tr Christmas tradition. You also have to wonder what the symbol is for call the child John, because that's what he was told. And when the child was born... They said, his name will be John. And everyone else went around, oh, it can't be that. I paraphrase. But the Bible says, everyone else around said, no, that's not the name you, you use in your family. And Zachariah, unable to speak, has to get a tablet and write, his name is John. The, way, the word John means God is gracious. God is full of grace. God acts through grace. God's plan is not dependent on you. It's dependent on God. It's not dependent on our traditions, on us getting things right. It's dependent on God. It's not dependent on us calling the child the right name that we've used for generations and generations. It's not even dependent on us doing what God wants. Zachariah doubted. He didn't believe, and God's plan still worked. God's plan is dependent on God alone. It is an act of grace that God invites us to join in with his plan of sanctification for the world. And that is where joy is found. By joining in this outrageous resurrection of the world, that is beyond us. When Zachariah's plan, um, sorry, when Zachariah's part in God's plan reaches fruition, he bursts forth in song. A song that in many ways reflects Mary's song that we looked at last week. 
Something that Luke does quite a bit in the Gospel and Acts is he pairs stories and songs up that they that individually they both seem quite simple, but they, they almost say something a little bit different that makes us realise that perhaps God is more complex than what we can imagine. In Mary's song last week, Mary sings of her lowliness, how meek and mild she is, and how God has used meek and mild people throughout the history of of his people. This song, this song of joy, is a counter to that. The songs of joy between Mary and Zechariah are two sides of the same coin, whereas Mary's is focused on the humility and meekness of her and God's people. This song is focused on the greatness of God and how much God can do. The two mistakes that we're called not to make when we're seeking joy in, this, in these two songs is one, not to overestimate our importance in God's plan. We are lowly and meek, but also not to underestimate the significance of God's plan, that God can do infinitely more than we possibly imagine through us. Not because of who we are, but because of who he is. We are clay in the potter's hands, but the potter is highly skilled. The potter can create great things from us if we allow him to mould us. There are three themes that, um, that um, Luke pits up from this passage, which really extend from the Old Testament and shape what we don't understand the ministry of John the Baptist and Jesus. Firstly, about kingship, about the one that is coming is the king. Secondly, that he is the rescuer. And thirdly, he is the, the promiser. I'm struggling there, the covenant maker. He makes a promise. It says, I read a different translation, I'm sure I was reading NRSV, but I read a different translation last night. It says, in verse 69, he's raised up a mighty saviour for us. And actually that phrase, uh, you'll see in the footnote, says, horn of salvation. He's raised up a mighty saviour for us in the house of his servant David. The word mighty there has been translated, really it's got its roots in the fact that he is a saviour kin. He's raised up a king who is saviour. And those two things aren't mutually exclusive, but nor do they go in pairs. It's quite easy to believe that Jesus is saviour without believing that he is kin. We need to believe that Jesus is both saviour and kin. I think there's some of us who are quite happy with the idea that Jesus saves us, that he washes away our, our bad stuff, that he makes us feel quite good, that he saves us. But are we willing to let him be king, to shape our lives, to change our lives, to lead us places where we're not comfortable in going, to boss us around and order us into, into doing things that we're not used to? We heard, um, we prayed, before, repent for the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. 
The reason we repent, the reason that we turn away from our sin and turn towards Christ is because the king has a plan for us. Because the kingdom of heaven is close at hand. Because the kingdom of heaven is graspable. Because God is doing something in us here to save and transform the world according to the plan of his cross, according to the plan that he will complete. Somehow we bridge that gap. But we need to be subservient to the king. Sometimes we're happy to repent and do the little bit of business where we feel good, but then we go out into the world and we leave it all behind. We stop being servants of the mighty king. I mean, sometimes we do that because we don't believe he is a mighty saviour. We believe he's a saviour for me, but the idea that he's a saviour for everyone else, the idea that he's truly the king of the whole world, is a bit worrying when we see the situation around us, when we see poverty and and problems, when we see uh, people disagreeing. Anyway, I'm going off my script. Go back to your script, Ben. Secondly, he is a rescuer. It says, he has shown the mercy promised to our ancestors and has remembered his covenant, that we will be saved from our enemies and from the hands of all that hate us. I've mixed up the verses there that we being rescued from the hands of our enemies. It appears three times, the sense of being rescued and saved. He's using the language of the Exodus. The Israelites were enslaved. God promises that he will rescue them through a meal of, of bread and lamb and wine, through being taken through the seas of the Red Sea. You might even call it baptism the death of a lamb, the people of Israel are saved. You are saved. The work has been done. Christ Jesus has rescued you on the cross. And how has he done it? It's because he has kept his promise. It talks about the oath of Abraham. He is a promise keeper. So the oath of Abraham is interesting. It's a very simple three-word phrase in this, in, this, in this passage, but it conjures up all images to people who are familiar with Genesis. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make a mighty people out of you. Your family will number, there'll be more, more of your family than there are stars in the sky. And there's lots of stars in the sky. And the way that he makes this promise is he, he copies what they do with kings and treaties between kings. So if you were a kin in the time of Abraham, what you would do is you'd get the other kin and you'd, you'd come to an agreement of that piece of land's yours, that piece of land's mine. And then to seal the deal, what you'd do is you'd take lots of livestock and you'd divide them in two. Not one livestock over there, one livestock over there. I mean, you take one pig and you divide the pit, that one pig in two. <laughs> one sheep divided in two. Now, in case you're in any doubt, this is a messy thing to do. Don't try it at home. We'll ask permission of the person who cleans the house if you do. Um, it was a purposefully messy, grotesque thing that you'd have bits of animal this side and bits of animal this side, and there'd be blood in between. It'd be, it'd be messy. And what would happen is the two kings would sit there, right? We agree with the promise, yeah? If we break, and then they'd walk together through this carnage of, of butchery. 
And the symbolism would be, if you break your promise, this is what I'll do to you. It's quite a violent way of, of sealing the deal. And when Abraham and God make their covenants, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, Abraham does the same thing. He splits all these animals up. And then it says, the presence of God goes through the middle. And Abraham doesn't. So whereas normally two kings would do it together, this mutually assured destruction, if you break the promise, the other king will, will, will kill you. Abraham stands back, and just the presence of God goes through these torn up animals. The promise is broken all the time by us. But the person who is stretched, the person who is divided, the person who is broken to make sure the promise is pulled back together is not me and you, but is God in Jesus Christ. The oath of Abraham is kept because Jesus is pulled and divided and crushed and beaten and broken. The promise of Abraham is still with us, that God is present with us, that God will bless us. Because although we broke the promise, God fulfills it by dying for us. And that means that we, although lowly and the the people who break our promises, can be a people without fear restored to the presence of God through the work and faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So going back to this son of joy. This son of joy is because a child has been born. Not Jesus, but John the Baptist. A new child, John the Baptist, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord and prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the forgiveness of their sins, by the tender mercy of our God, the dawn from on high will break upon us. John is a prophet who announces the rival of Jesus Christ. He announces that Jesus Christ will take away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God, he says, who takes away the sin of the world at the beginning of John's Gospel. God has great plans for his people which aren't plans of completion, but are plans of work. God will complete the work alone, not his people. In the meantime, we are called to join in what God is doing. The truth is not just that God will one day do an awesome work and restore and make all things new. They will take away all pain and death and problems, although he will. Nor is the truth just that God has already finished his work on the cross and resurrection, although he has. The truth is both those things and the fact that God is doing it in our midst and inviting us to join in. That the dawn is breaking and that we are called to join in the breaking of that dawn. If last week's talk was about asking ourselves if we try to shape God's plans, if we're humble enough to say, God, do with us what you will. This week is about asking ourselves how big and great do we think those plans really are.
Do we really believe that God is going to reach every corner of Hampton with the love of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit? Do we really believe that God will heal and transform and speak to us and heal and restore us? Do we really believe that God is going to take this church and do something remarkable for it, not because of who we are, but because of who he is and he has mighty plans? Or do we limit that? Because joy is found in believing that God can do infinitely more than we possibly imagine. This phrase, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, which is what John the Baptist cries out in the beginning of John 1, is a fascinating phrase. I wrote, about, I wrote a chapter on this in my dissertation. It's a really exciting chapter about what the Lamb of God is. The Lamb of God here is the Lamb of God in Revelation 14. The fact that the one we follow, the one who was a baby in a manger, the one who's a carpenter of Nazareth who went round healing people, the one who died on the cross, the one who rose from the grave, he sits on the eternal throne of heaven as a lamb, meek and mild, that the church is drawn to him, that he teaches the, he teaches the church a new song that resounds with creation, that brings new life and healing and restoration. That the Lamb of God is mighty in Revelation. And the Lamb of God is who we join in with. He removes the sin of the world. Do you believe that you are called to be part of God, removing the sin and death of this world? Do you believe that he can do mighty things through you? More than you can imagine, because he is eternal, and yet he chooses to use you and I. Mary's song that we heard about last week poses to us, are you trying to shape God's plans? Are you trying to be God in your own life? Because Mary isn't. Mary's lowly and allows herself to be used by God in how he sees fits. Zachariah's song this week poses to us, do you really believe that the coming Jesus the baby you will celebrate at Christmas is the true king of the world and that he chooses you to use. One song is about our meekness. This song is about God's mightiness. So if you're able, you please stand and we'll, we'll ask God to, um, to meet with us and reveal something to us of, of his greatness.